three weeks, beginning a study on the spiritual gifts. And we're working our way through those. We want to be diligent to understand them because Paul made it clear his intent was that he wanted the Corinthian church to understand them because they are good, they're beneficial. So we want to give some attention to that. And it follows very closely from what we've been doing at Waypoint. Being a young church, laying foundations, being trying to be very uh, wise and circumspect in how we build. We've gotten to the place where we've talked about discipleship, membership. And what follows from this is, okay, if you're going to be a disciple of Christ and, and a member of Waypoint or serving at Waypoint, we want you to know what your spiritual gifts are so that you can operate where the Spirit has gifted you and be most effective, most fruitful in that way. Last week what we did was we kind of categorized, taking from 1 Peter 4, his broad categories. And Peter basically referenced speaking gifts and serving gifts. I added to that the office gifts, which we will look at following the specific gifts, but the office gifts would be that of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, and deacon. Those are offices in a church. Um, Of course, I don't believe apostles are are still around, but they were offices nonetheless when these were written. Last week, we covered three of the speaking gifts. In particularly, we covered word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and teaching, and what those were. I love looking at those gifts. I believe for me personally, that's where the Lord has equipped me to serve, and I've seen those in operation in my own life and ministry And it's nothing of myself. I did not want to be a teacher. I tried to run from it. Um, But the Lord had His way in me. So, this week we're going to cover perhaps what's become, unfortunately I think, the most divisive of all gifts, and that's the gift of tongues, as the English translation says it, and interpretation of tongues. And if you remember, what we're going to do is we're going to look at these gifts as they were in the Scriptures when they were written, There is a debate on that gift in particular, as well as a few others, whether those gifts are still in operation today. We are going to cover that topic after we define biblically what those gifts are um, and try and answer that question for ourselves. But we want to answer, okay, what do we know about these gifts? What does the Scripture say they are? What did they look like in operation? What is the purpose of them back in the early church? So with that, I want to pray. And then we will begin making our way through these two gifts. Father God, we just want to pray um, for this morning, Lord. Um, Especially with this study, Lord. It's become a divisive issue, unfortunately. But it was a gift, nonetheless, that you gave the, the first church at the very least. And it was a beautiful gift. It was a good gift. So this morning, Lord, I pray, if all we see out of your word was that this gift, as it was given, as it was intended, was something good. It was beautiful, and it had a very important purpose. And so, Lord, build us up in Your Word. Teach us rightly. Help us to be um, Bereans, Lord, where we don't come to the Scripture with our biases, with preconditions, presuppositions, uh, Lord, that would cause us to miss a truth. Help us to be, as Paul said to the Thessalonians, testing all things. And whatever is good, hold on to it. Whatever's not, don't. But we want to be objective as we come to the Word because this is your Word to us. We don't determine what it says. We want to discover what it says. And we need your grace to do that. So help us to be humble as we approach it. Um, And Father, seeing your purposes, your truth as it is written. Father, I thank you for this church that hungers for your Word, that comes with that mindset week in and week out. They want to be taught And uh, I just love teaching people who are hungry for that. It's so exciting. I pray you continue to feed that. And I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 12, we've kind of done all of our setting up. We've covered the bases. We've laid foundation of what gifts are uh, for. They're, They're for building up the body. Each one is given one. There's a diversity of gifts, and that's important. Not everyone's an eye, not everyone's a hand, not everyone's so forth. So diversity in the gifts is important. Now we've moved on, beginning last week, with what the gifts Paul identifies are in particular. So, because this gift of tongues, as it's translated, is such a big deal, I've decided this week to really try and do my homework. 
Uh, in fact, I started outlining this lesson three weeks ago when we were in Lubbock uh, for our first appointment with Luke because I knew um, being a non-denominational church, we have a variety of theological backgrounds coming in. And so I just want to cover the bases. I want to be very diligent um, in speaking to this gift as I see it in Scripture. What we're going to do with the gift of tongues before we ever get to interpretation, uh, I wrote down at least seven questions that I think are important with this gift that will help us answer what it is biblically. First, what do we know from Scripture about what this gift is? Second, is this gift um, what we see so often today, the ecstatic utterances? Third, is this the tongue of angels, which is what a lot of um, people will say. That's out of 1 Corinthians 13. Four, is this a gift everybody should have? Five, what were Paul's encouragements about this gift? What did he commend? Because he did commend a lot about it. Verse six, what were Paul's instructions regarding the use of this gift? He laid down instructions of how it should be practiced. And seven, uh, is one that I, I'm not hesitant to share, but I'm, I'm going to give a disclaimer. I want you to test it. What I believe the big picture about this gift is. Um, and fortunately, just yesterday, I found one commentator who's a significant commentator who actually said the same thing that I'd been seeing. Up to that point, I didn't see anybody saying what I saw, and so I was hesitant to say. But we'll get to that. I think it's incredibly exciting. All right, so number one, what do we know? Let's just try and get information about what we know from the Scripture about this gift of tongues. Number one, what is the word that Paul uses? In, in 1 Corinthians 12, 8, he begins, So one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Verse 9, To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, verse 10, the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues. And there at the end of verse 10, to another the interpretation of tongues. So the Greek word that's used everywhere when tongues is referenced is the Greek word glossa. And literally what it means, it can refer to at least six different things I found in Scripture. It can refer to the physical tongue, the appendage, for instance, in Mark 7, when Jesus touched the stammering tongue of the man who had trouble speaking, he, he was referring to the physical appendage. So it is used of a physical appendage. It was the same word used on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 3, of the fiery tongues that came down and rested upon uh, the 120 who were gathered. It can refer to a language, and that's actually what it most often is referred to, a physical language or a dialect of people. Acts 2, 4, verse 11, we're going to get there in a little bit. The fourth use is it can refer to actually a people group identified by the language they speak. That's the case in Revelation when um, people from every tribe, language, so on and so forth, is represented in heaven. So it can refer to a people group identified by the language they speak. There is one reference in 1 Corinthians 13, as I said, where Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or the tongues of angels. So that it's used in reference to angels as well as men. And then sixthly, what we're really trying to cover today is it, it's referred to the supernatural gift of the Spirit. Okay, So those are six different uses. So when you're studying the gift, you've got to understand, okay, what's the word? How is it used? What's it look like? That's what we're going to look at. There's many examples in Scripture that we're going to take. If you want, keep your finger here in 1 Corinthians 12 and turn over to Acts chapter 2 because this is uniquely a New Testament gift. It was prophesied in Joel on the day of Pentecost that the Lord would pour out His Spirit. In fact, Peter quotes Joel chapter 2 in reference to this when he's challenged as, as they're praising God in all these different languages and the people say, hey, you're drunk. And Peter says, we're not drunk. What you're seeing happen is what was foretold by Joel. And in Joel, it's actually said... Um, if you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 17, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see vision, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants, female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit. Okay, He goes on, he actually also quotes Isaiah, talking about the different tongues by which God would speak to these people even though they wouldn't believe him. 
In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, though, is where we see the Holy Spirit given to the church. That's the birth of the church. And what happened immediately in verse 2 of Acts 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we see that's the, the giving of this gift, that's the manifestation of that gift for the first time. Now there's the, the following questions I'm going to try to answer this, but first, what does the Greek word glossa mean as it's here in Acts, as it's used in 1 Corinthians 12? Um, we see how it's used in reference to the physical appendage, all these other things, but when it's talking in these cases, the context makes it clear the way it's being used is as of a language. Okay? In other words, what all the various people were hearing in Acts chapter 2 were their own dialects being spoken. Okay? If you look at verse uh, 5 and 8, for instance, of Acts chapter 2, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So every nation is represented here. At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them, that's the ones who the tongues rested on, speak in their own language. The word language there is not glossa, it's dialect, or what we get our word dialect from in English. And so the, the writer Luke is stitching together, look, what was happening in, in this gift was a language. How do we know? Because the people listening were hearing their language being spoken. And it actually goes on in verse 8 of Acts chapter 2 to identify the very languages they were hearing. If you look at verse 8, or uh, verse, uh, yeah, read in verse 8. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So what they're hearing was their native language being spoken. It identifies them. Verse 9, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Residents of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, there's Glossa again, the mighty works of God. This again happens in chapter 10 when the Spirit comes on the Gentile world with Cornelius, in fact, the writer says what happened to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and all his family and friends who were with him is exactly what happened to us on the day of Pentecost. And so they stitch them together. In other words, what we read in Acts chapter 2 is exactly what happened in Acts chapter 10. So we conclude it was languages. They heard him speaking. In fact, it doesn't say there was an interpreter there in Acts 10, but the people, Peter and those who were with him, could hear these men praising God. In a language, it was understood. That's how this word is most often used as language. In other words, what we hear is a language being spoken that the one speaking did not previously know. They couldn't, it wasn't, we have some linguists in our church. It wasn't something where these guys went to school, learned the language, and spoke it. This was a supernatural empowering, an immediate empowering to speak the praises of God in a language that their mind could not comprehend. So, a further argument to support that is, is the fact that um, we'll see in a minute in 1 Corinthians, Paul actually says, look, if a language is being spoken that no one knows, there needs to be an interpreter so that the church can be built up. There was no interpreter in Acts chapter 2, chapter 10, or chapter 19. Therefore, we can conclude there was no need for an interpreter. The languages were understood. They didn't need the interpreter. So in this passage, Paul, um, in, it's Acts 19, actually, I'm not going to say this. I want to quote Wayne Grudem because this, uh, I have come to really find myself very, very, very like-minded with this man. He's a Reformed scholar, uh, which I would be in the Reformed camp theologically, but I find myself in a weird place, as I've told you. I don't follow most Reformers in believing that these gifts have ceased. Um, so I've, I'm, I'm in, in between, and, and when I get to this debate, I'm actually going to quote many Reformed people who are coming to that place. David Platt, Wayne Grudem, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones was one. All these guys who are stalwarts of the faith see it as we see it. 
or as I see it. But here's what Wayne Grudem says at this point about what this gift is. And I, I think he nailed it. He says this, in the New Testament passages where speaking in quote tongues is discussed, the meaning languages is always what's in view. It's unfortunate, therefore, that the English translations have continued to use the phrase speaking in tongues, which is an expression not used in ordinary English in which gives the impression, and which gives the impression of some kind of strange experience. But if English translations were to use the expression speaking in languages, it would not seem nearly as strange and would give the reader a sense much closer to what first century Greek speaking readers would have heard in the phrase when they read Acts or 1 Corinthians. You see what he's saying there? Speaking in tongues was a common phrase where when, when a Greek or a Jew heard that, they knew it was a reference to language. That's how it's always used in scripture. In 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 13, Acts, it's, it's speaking of a language. So if you, if we were to translate it in our English Bible as the gift of speaking in languages, all of a sudden that takes away the stigma of what this gift seems to be. But that's what it is. Um, however, most people know of the gift as, as by way of identity as the gift of speaking in tongues. It's just not a phrase we use in the English language much. So, the definition of the gift of tongues, it, it, when you get into 1 Corinthians 12, Acts, and all the information we can gather of what the word actually means and how do we see it being used, here's how we can define it. The gift of tongues is the Holy Spirit empowering an individual to speak in a previously unknown language and dialect. And this was directed Godward in either prayer or praise. So that gives us the ability to answer the second question that I wrote down. Is this gift then the ecstatic utterances we see practiced uh, by many churches today by our um, charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters? Well, I don't believe it is. And the reason being is I just don't ever see that in the New Testament. If I could see that example in the New Testament, then I'd entertain. But every time it's used or defined, it's used in reference to a language, not an utterance. Speaking in a previously unknown language um, is always what it seems to be talking about. So I don't believe the ecstatic utterances today is what we see the gift is, biblically. Um, but that, that always leads to this question, the third question. 1 Corinthians 13.1, well then it's the tongue of angels that you hear. Okay, Let's read 1 Corinthians 13.1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So we do see there, Paul reference, um, apparently a dialect, an angelic dialect that exists. That you can't deny. Okay, There apparently is a language of heaven spoken, but what is that language? Is that something that men are gifted with? What's Paul doing in referencing the tongues of angels in 1 Corinthians 13? Is that his focus, in other words? Um, what we see Paul doing, the context goes back to the last verse of 1 Corinthians 12. He says in verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts. And now we're going to get to that in a minute. He ranks the gifts as far as their importance. And actually, the gift of languages, tongues, was the last, the least important. And he says, desire the higher ones. But then he concludes the last sentence there of 12, I will show you still a more excellent way. So what Paul's going to argue in 1 Corinthians 13.1, I don't think, is that people can actually speak this angelic language. What Paul basically does is say, look, if I have all faith, if I have all knowledge, if I have all wisdom, if I can speak in every language, whether human or angelic, if I give everything to be burned, if I give my entire life, and yet don't have love, none of that matters. In other words, what Paul's painting is a hypothetical argument to highlight the importance of not the gift, but love. Love is always what's paramount. We established in our, in our gift, uh, or in our study of, of the purpose of the gifts is, um, you always be weary, whatever gift it is, of people who exalt one gift over the other. 
right? Because what Paul's focus is always on is, are you loving each other? That's what's important. Are you bearing Christ-like fruit? Not are you manifesting this gift or that gift? So I don't think um, Paul's actually saying that we can speak in this angelic dialect. I think he's making a hypothetical argument that even if you could, but don't have love, it doesn't matter. I think that's what he's saying. So I don't know that we can actually claim that the ecstatic utterances are an angelic dialect. Not only that, when you actually go and read all the accounts of an angel speaking to people, whether it's on earth or in heaven, for instance in Revelation, what is going on? It's an understood language. Okay? It's always an understood language, even when angels are speaking it. You never hear the, the ununderstandable utterances um, that people say is an angelic dialect. So I'm not convinced that, that we could actually speak an angelic language, but even if we could speak an angelic language, I'm not convinced that that's what Paul is actually saying is, is the gift. Um, the gifts, remember, are not meant... I don't, I don't see, and this is an uh, argument outside of Scripture, but I just don't see why God would even equip someone to speak an angelic language when the gift itself is meant to build up people. I mean, we don't, we don't speak angel around here, right? And it wouldn't profit you much to speak angel. Um, so the, the whole purpose of the gift is to build people up. You can't quite do that with a heavenly, unknown, angelic language. Of course, unless there's a interpreter. The fourth... Um, the fourth question I had that I wrote down concerning this gift is, is this gift one that everybody should have? Now, I actually appreciate the zeal here from charismatic and uh, Pentecostal people because it was certainly something that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14. He told the church, I wish all of you spoke in languages, but I wish even more that you prophesied. And it goes back to his hierarchy, what he saw the purpose and extent of this gift should be. So I actually appreciate that about them. They were zealous for this gift because they saw the benefit, the blessing that it was in the early church. Paul commended them. In fact, he goes on in chapter 14 to say, don't prevent this gift from being done, right? I think we need to take that serious. But is it something that everyone should manifest? I don't think so. I don't think it is. Where does that belief come from? Well, people who say that that is the, that is the mark of the, the Spirit-filled person is that you're able to speak in tongues, they take that from Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, and Acts 19. Where in Acts 2, all 120 who are in the upper room did receive a language to speak in. Same is, is true in Acts chapter 10. Everyone, including Cornelius and those in his household, every one of them did speak in a language not previously known. The 12 uh, disciples of John the Baptist in Acts 19, every one of them spoke in tongues. If you remember, most of you weren't here, I think, when I went through Acts last year, but what that is, Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19, it's showing the progression of the gospel outwardly. And that's why it was so important that each one of those representatives showed the move of the Spirit. Remember what Jesus said, Acts 1.8, uh, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. Where did it start? The Spirit showed up at Jerusalem. Cornelius is spreading outwardly to the Gentile world. And finally, those disciples of John the Baptist who had not yet fully come into the New Covenant understanding, they actually said in Acts 19, we don't even know if there's a Holy Spirit. Um, they also are wrapped up showing the end of John the Baptist's ministry, the inauguration of Christ. He's come and fulfilled all things. But really what, what this idea of everyone speaking in, the, in this gift is tied to is someone's understanding of what the baptism of the Spirit is. Uh, I don't have time to go through that doctrine as well. The baptism of the Spirit, though, I think scripturally what that is, is when a person comes to faith in Christ, they are baptized in the Spirit. They're immersed. They're, they're made one in Him. Now, I do think that the, the evidence of someone being incorporated into the body of Christ in that way can come several months later, but I don't think there's multiple baptisms. There's multiple fillings. Where now that the Spirit resides in someone, He fills them for service. He fills them for service. He fills them for service. Over and over again, we do see that. But it's not multiple baptisms. So um, that's where that belief comes from. But I think it's shaky to make a precedent where this is the evidence of someone's faith 
when the Bible doesn't explicitly say that. Just because it happened to everyone on Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, it doesn't actually say that's the normative pattern. Right? It doesn't prescribe that, in other words. In fact, I think it's, it's wrong to say that when we actually read in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 that no, not everyone will have this gift, and that's okay. It was the experience of all 120 there, but you can't take that and make it normative for us. But look at this um, with me, just so you guys see this. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. Paul states, after saying what the gifts are, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So the Spirit chooses whom he will and gives them what gift he chooses, right? It's his to choose. He's sovereign in that way. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 through 27 is really one long argument for the diversity of gifts in one body. That's where Paul argues, look, not everyone will have the same gift. And he uses the metaphor of the body being one body, yet many members, right? That's the second major argument that not everyone will have this. But in, in verse 17 and 18 of Acts 12, he says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? So that actually, the idea that everyone should have this gift, in my mind, at least as far as I understand that passage, goes against what Paul's saying. God wants a diversity of gifts, not everyone to be an eye, right? But even more so in verse um, 30 of chapter 12, and this really is the scripture that, that for me answers that question, Paul asks rhetorically, do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Right? And he goes, he lists all the gifts. And the answer, obviously, rhetorically, is no. Not everyone does that. Why? Because the Spirit of God is sovereign in choosing whom He will to give them to. And He's chosen not to give everybody the same gift, but to diversify the gifts. That's His plan. It's His body, and He so arranged His body to be diverse. In verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 5, some will say, well, Paul encouraged everyone to speak in tongues. He said in verse 5, chapter 14, now I want you all to speak in tongues. Now that's true. Paul saw the value of that gift. And to earnestly desire that gift is not wrong. Keeping in mind, the Spirit may give you that, and He may not. It's His sovereign choice, not ours, even if you desire it. I've told you this um, many times. I've often desired to be an evangelist, but I'm just not empowered in that way. When I try to evangelize, it's, it's not like Billy Graham where droves and droves of people are coming. Why? Because God's not empowered me to do that. It's in teaching. That's where I find fruitfulness. But even in verse 5 of chapter 14, he says, after I want you all to speak in tongues, he says, but even more to prophesy unless someone interprets, because one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets. So, is this a gift everyone should have? No, not necessarily. Is it wrong to seek it? No, not necessarily. But it's the Spirit's sovereign choice. So let's get in, though, now to some of the meat of this. Fifth question I wrote down, what were Paul's encouragements about this gift? And this is where I think we as a church can really be challenged, because... Uh, I, I think a lot of fear, honestly, keeps people away from this gift um, and what it actually was. But Paul, it was something Paul encouraged the Corinthian church, which, by the way, is one of the reasons I don't think, um, I don't believe in cessationism. If, if the gifts were going to cease with the apostles, why is he actually encouraging them to seek this? And why did he actually lay down rules for how to use it? Um, Paul says a few things that we can take encouragement from. It may come as a surprise, but he does encourage, and, and Paul highly values this gift. One, he wished all could speak in tongues. We just read that in, in verse 5. I want you all to speak in languages, but even more to prophesy. It doesn't downplay his desire. Hey, I wish you all could do this. Why? Because there's a benefit. There's something good in that. Verse, uh, the second reason or encouragement, Paul says, is really the larger one. Um, even without an interpreter, the one who prays in a language unknown to himself still edifies himself. So at the very least, the one who has this gift, even if the only person that's being edified and built up is himself, that's a plus, right? 
But that's also why Paul ranks it the last of all the gifts. The gifts were given to edify the church as a whole. And so the scope of teaching, the scope of a word of wisdom, scope of a prophecy or whatever, is much larger in its effect and encouragement than the gift of tongues potentially is. Does that make sense? The one who could speak in a language, if there is no one to interpret the language for the edification of the whole, the only person that's being built up is that one person. That's good, but its scope is limited. So he, uh, let's read that though. 1 Corinthians 14, 4. The one who speaks in a language, a tongue, builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. He goes on to say, uh, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in the tongue, unless someone interprets, so what? That the church might be built up. Uh, but verse 13 through 15, he goes on. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue, this is chapter 14, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So as with this point, most people say the gift of tongues. Uh, and this is where today you hear what the gift is, is a prayer language. You've probably heard that. Now, I don't think that's necessarily without precedence in the scriptures, because it certainly has an aspect of private prayer, Right? Is that the intent of that gift, though? Not necessarily. Because the, the real scope of what a gift should be for is the whole church. If none can interpret, though, what it becomes is simply a private prayer language where the individual is built up. Um, so, I, I, you know, that's one of those points, if, if you were to go have gone through our statement of faith, for instance, I would have put in section D of, hey, we can disagree about that, no, no harm, no foul, right? Some people think this gift is a private prayer language. Others think it should be operated. You actually, there's precedence for both there, and I'm not going to split hairs on that. And most commentators, um, I, I think, are, are at that point too. So at the very minimum, what this gift is, is being able to pray with our spirit even when your mind is not able to comprehend Paul's spirit prays directly to God, he said, even though his mind remains unfruitful. Now he does say what's best is to pray with his spirit, but to pray with his mind also, right? If there's no one to interpret, however, you are still being built up in your spirit. It's edifying to the individual. What's best, though, is that your mind comprehends and you're built up in your spirit. That's what Paul's whole uh, thrust is in 1 Corinthians 14, 13 and following. So what this gift means, though, is this is not the Holy Spirit praying through you. Okay, This is not the Holy Spirit taking control of your language and, and, and you have no self-control in that. That's not what Paul's saying. In fact, Paul makes it clear that it is his spirit and his mind. Right? It's not the Holy Spirit and his mind being bypassed. It's his spirit is praying. But this leads to another question under this point. Why, why, does this, why bypass the mind? Well, I wrote down several things. Paul makes it clear that what is best is both mind and spirit being engaged. That's ideal. But if he prays with his spirit and no one interprets what the language is so that his mind can comprehend it, there's still benefit. One, his spirit is edified. It's a spiritual issue. This is what's hard, I think, and this is really kind of nailing in our Western culture what's hardest for people about this gift. We are a very anti-supernatural, materialistic culture. And if we can't comprehend something rationally, and we can't touch it, taste it, feel it in the flesh, we tend to reject it. But Paul doesn't do that here. He says, your spirit is still being built up. Okay, there's a benefit. We need to understand that's Paul's view of this gift. It reminds us, in other words, that we walk not according to the flesh, nor by our own understanding. It reminds us God's ways and works are spiritual in its inceptions, even when they manifest outwardly in the physical. And His ways are not our ways. Reminds us also that so much of what is done or celebrated in the new covenant is non-material. Right? When we take communion, what are we actually celebrating? The spiritual 
affect the spiritual work of Christ's shed blood for us, right? When we were baptized, what is it we're celebrating? The water? No. We're celebrating the spiritual new birth of that individual. When we pray, what is, what's going on? A spiritual communication between us and the Lord. Worshiping in the Lord, uh, worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth, in fact, is what Jesus said he's looking for. Okay? The Jews had worshiped the Lord in the flesh for a long time and weren't actually engaging the Lord in worship, right? So, so much of what we do uh, in the new covenant is non material. This gift is squarely a non material gift in that sense. The very minimum its effect is to build one up in his own spirit. But it also reminds us that we can be built up spiritually even when we don't fully comprehend something that's going on. And this is actually a pretty common experience for believers. Um, there's always interactions I have almost weekly with people where God brings us together in circumstance or, or whatever it might be, and I get to minister to them somehow, and I know in my spirit I am encouraged, I'm excited about what happened, but I have no idea the full scope of what's going on, right? It's an encouragement to me nonetheless. So to think that you have to fully rationally understand everything is really a misnomer in Scripture. We never will. And that's what this gift is basically telling us. Your mind can not understand, and you can still be built up. Okay, So, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, in other words. The sixth um, question I wrote down, what were Paul's instructions regarding the use of this gift? Now, this really is, is important. I think it's, it's actually most often what's ignored in churches who do practice this gift as they understand it. Um, the Corinthians certainly practiced this gift in an unbiblical way, and it prompted Paul in chapter 14 to lay down some rules for its operation. So the Corinthians' zeal for the gift caused them to misuse it, but Paul brought them back down to earth and basically says all things should be done in order to build up the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, 12. He says that to him, with your, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to, strive to excel in what? Building up the church. But down in verse 23, beginning in verse 20 though, of chapter 14, he says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it's written by people of strange tongues. Now this is Isaiah, okay? Um, People of strained tongues, and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. It's a direct prophecy about the day of Pentecost, right? <laughs> what happened to Peter and the rest of the gang? They spoke to the Jews in strange languages. But most of the Jews still rejected them, right? 3,000 came to faith. Most of them still rejected it. So God said that would happen, even though this was a sign to them. Uh, verse 22, thus tongues are a sign... Not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. But verse 23, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Yeah, they do. And that's actually what happens most of the time. And it grieves me because I don't think, in other words, as I understand this gift to be a gift of language, I don't think it should be something scary. But unfortunately, that's what happens. Most people are frightened away from it because they see the chaotic nature of it as it's practiced. But verse 24, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all. Secrets of his heart are disclosed. So Paul actually identifies what the problem is. They'll think you're mad if everyone's speaking in tongues at the same time and no one knows what's going on. So he lays down, okay, here's orderly worship. Here's what we need to do. Verse 26, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Once again, taking us back. The purpose of gifts is to build up the church. That's it. How do we do that? Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. He identifies four things, okay? Actually, I didn't read the last part. Uh, let me go back. Let someone interpret, verse 28. But if there is no one to interpret, 
Let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and the God. So four things Paul lays down for an orderly practice of this gift for the Corinthians. He says, one, let two people, at most three people, use this gift in a church service. So immediately when you see churches erupting, everyone erupting out in this, they're violating what Paul said. I don't see that as the Spirit moving them to do that. I don't think the Spirit would author this and then contradict himself in practice. Two, at most three. Then he says, and each in turn. So even if two people are, are doing it, they need to wait their turn. In other words, they can control this gift. If someone is, is speaking in a language, they need to let that person finish, and then an interpretation of what's been, give, been said, given, and then they can go. So it's not something where it's, they have no control over it. Yeah, you go and turn, you see. The third thing he says is let someone interpret. Okay, If it's going to be spoken publicly, the whole body needs to benefit from it. So let someone interpret it. The fourth thing is if there's no one to interpret, don't say it. Make it a prayer language. Okay, Pray to God. That's the four rules, and it's very basic. So Paul's prescription here for orderly worship, it really does contradict the idea that one cannot control this gift or that it is the Holy Spirit taking control of your mouth and just speaking. If you remember Paul's whole focus, and we're going to see this with 1 Corinthians 13, as we've said, Paul's focus is building up the church and the fruit of the Spirit. Now what is the last aspect of the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5. Self-control, right? So again, the fruit of the Spirit in one's life is self-control. That's what the Spirit of God will produce in every believer even if every believer doesn't have this gift, there will always be self-control in someone walking in the Spirit. So, so one who claims to be under the Spirit's control and is absolutely out of control is not walking in the Spirit. He will never contradict that. There will always be self-control. Nor does the Spirit ever force someone to operate a gift against their will. Okay, Even teaching. He never forces you to operate a gift against your will. Paul encouraged Timothy just the other. Hey, Timothy, you need to stir up the gift that was given to you. Practice it, right? What's, what's the idea there? You can actually quench the Spirit's work in your life and not allow Him to move in you and exercise those gifts, whatever gift it might be, including this one. And then Paul closes this section reminding the Corinthians that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Read that with me. This is verse 33. For God... Is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So in a church service, if everyone were to be speaking in this gift, no one knows what's going on, no one knows what's being said, everyone's confused. What does Paul say? God's not a God of confusion. That would not be Him. He's a God of peace, and He brings up building. So, let me, let me go on very quickly, it's not hard, to the interpretation um, and then I want to say what I think the big picture of the gift of tongues actually is for. So the second thing, we've hit on it much, the interpretation of tongues. The definition, obviously, uh, an accounting of this gift is um, it reports, interpret gives the sense of what's being said. Now, this is he doesn't say translation, okay? That's important. This is not a word-for-word-for-word translation of what was just said. It's an interpretation. In other words, it gives the sense of what's being said as clearly and effectively as possible. Okay, um, So that's what this gift is. If, if someone shares in a language something that God gives them, one will stand up and say, here's what they said. Boom. I read of one pastor who I really like. Um, they, they were a growing church. They were planning and saving for a new church building, much like us. And they finally got it. And their church was finished. They paid for it. They moved in. And one lady got up, he said, and spoke in an old French Renaissance language. And someone who was in the crowd stood up and said, here's what she said. In fact, um, I don't know that that person necessarily had the gift of interpretation because he knew that old French Renaissance language. He'd studied it and he actually said, I've never heard it spoken so perfectly. And then he began to say she was just praising God and thanking God for providing, for giving them, da-da-da-da-da. Just like we see in Acts chapter 2. Praising God, right? Thanking God. Now, when the interpretation was given, that would encourage the whole church, right? 
Thank you, Lord, for being faithful, for providing for us. Um, now, I, I called Jana last night to make sure I could share this. I, I uh, have not personally, I don't have the gift of language, nor have I ever really seen it, um, as I understand it biblically, nor have I really experienced the interpretation of it. But my brother and our own Jana both have um, some pretty incredible stories of what I believe was an interpretation given by the Lord. Jana was on a mission trip with a bunch of other people in Mexico back in college. And at the end of college, the Spanish pastor spoke to them in Spanish. And none of them could speak Spanish. None of them knew the language. But every one of the, the girls there sat there, and what the pastor was saying to them was, you know, we're, we're, we need to disciple these orphan widows, or these orphan girls in our care, so that they can also fulfill the Great Commission and go out and disciple others. Basically encouraging the church, we need to pour into these orphan girls so that they can go out into the world and fulfill the Great Commission. And Jana and all the rest sitting there understood what this pastor was saying. They got back to their dorm or wherever it was they were staying, and they sat down and said, did you understand what he was saying? Yeah. But none of them spoke Spanish. So what was that? Jan actually had a cessationist pastor that she was under for a while tell her, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> Wrote it off. How do you explain that then? How did I understand the Spanish-speaking pastor when I don't know Spanish? Well, the Spirit of God gave them the interpretation. My brother is the other example I know of. Very first mission trip he went on to Ghana, Africa. They were in a tribal region. He and his team leader were surrounded by an angry mob of tribesmen who were either going to beat him or kill him. And my brother, the way he said it was, in a minute, the Spirit of God just filled me with courage and boldness, and I began rebuking those people for what they were about to do to us and warning them against it. And at the end of what my brother said, he said, do you understand me? And all of them said, yeah, and let them go. <laughs> They're tribesmen. <laughs> they didn't speak English. What was going on? I think the Spirit of God was giving the interpretation. Of those people. He was causing their mind to understand the language being spoken. So I think those are, uh, for me, those are just examples of, yeah, I don't think these gifts have ceased. I think the Lord can give someone understanding of a language when they previously didn't know that. And He has. So what's the big picture? I'll end with this. Three weeks ago, I wrote in my journal as I was studying this, um, you know, I've often wondered, what, what really is the purpose of this gift? It seems so strange. You know, why, why would the Lord give this gift? What's its scope? Um, and Paul himself is always pointing us back to the big picture, right? Building up the church, building up the church. That's the big picture of the gifts. So I've wondered that. What's, what's the point? And my disclaimer, again, is you need to test this. If you completely disagree with me on this, I'm fine with that. Here's what I think the big picture is. I think that on Pentecost and, and afterward, what the gift of tongues is, is the reversal of Babel, Okay. You remember what happened on the account of Babel. The people were unified in language, in purpose, in rebellion against God. They built a tower to begin worshiping themselves, proclaiming themselves as Lord. They were unified in their language and purpose, exalt, uh, exalting themselves and in rebellion against God. When you read that account, you read what happened at Pentecost. It's flipped. It's exactly flipped. I think what the Lord is doing with this gift is reversing Babel. Let me just read some of the things I wrote down. At Babel, man was worshiping himself as Lord. At Pentecost, man was worshiping Jesus and proclaiming Jesus as Lord, no longer exalting himself. At Babel, man was in full rebellion to the will of God with one purpose, one mind, one unified language. They, in other words, had fully institutionalized themselves against God. But at Pentecost, with this gift, man is now in full submission and restored back to God to do His will, which is the church's mission, right? That's what the church is doing. The church is unified in purpose, in thought, in proclamation, Jesus Christ is Lord, not us. So, God confuses at Babel the language and compels the people outward, which was His command to Adam and Eve. Go out into all the earth and subdue it. They rebelled, said, no, we're staying here in this plane and we're going to worship ourselves. God says, no, you're not. You're going. But what's He do at Pentecost? 
He reverses that. Um, In Jerusalem, in Judaism, the people had to go to Jerusalem to worship. They had to become Jews to worship. You had to uh, come under the law to worship. But what's God do? He gives the people the gospel in their own languages and compels them again outward to fulfill the commission. So, that's my belief. I, I just see too many parallels and the importance of Babel that's unaccounted for. Um, I think it's also a foreshadow. And this is what Wayne Grudem, what I picked up from him, is, is he thinks that Pentecost and this ability to speak in the languages of men is actually a foreshadow of what heaven's going to be like, where every language is represented and we are in unity praising the one Lord. If that's the case, now just hypothetically, if that's what this gift is about... Is that not beautiful? <laughs> right? That's beautiful. So I don't think it's the ecstatic um, utterances we see. I think it's languages. It's the only way it's ever used. I think there's a great purpose in that gift when it's exercised in a biblical way. Um, it does, that, as I've described it, that doesn't frighten me. <laughs> I see the purpose in that. Um, so I'll close with that. Again, If you want to just say, you're way off, you're wet behind the ears, Seth, I won't be offended by that. Um, But my job is to try and explain the Scriptures to you. That's what I see. So I want to call the worship team up. We're going to close in prayer and go out in song. Father God, I I just thank You that uh, whatever this gift is today, Lord, uh, what we read of it in the New Testament, it was something that brought people together. It was an incredible sign to those watching that God was amongst them, empowering them to speak the languages of men, the praises of God, exalting the Lord Jesus in every language on earth. Because man in himself was in full rebellion against you. And that didn't stop just because their language was confused. In fact, it caused that rebellion to spread over all the earth, in fulfillment of your command, yet still in rebellion. And what we see you doing now with this gift, empowering people to speak the languages of men, we see your gospel now coming to every language under the Lordship of Christ. And that is beautiful to me, Lord. You care for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And your gospel, you said, will go out to all of them. So I see a purpose for this gift in empowering someone to speak a language they previously didn't know, know that, that your praises, that your gospel might be made known to them. And Father, if, if a language is spoken that no one knows, you are certainly able to cause someone to understand what's said so that the church will be built up. That's not beyond you. But Father, we want to be biblical We want to be corrected where we need to be corrected. We want to just know what Your Word says, Lord. Give us that heart above all things. Help us as a church to understand that whatever the gift is, we want to build each other up in it. And to that end, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.